It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's Tuesday. Uh, We have entered into yet another period of self-examination and you'll be very uh, unsurprised to hear that I'll be examining an awful lot this morning. Not least uh, some of the things that have not only gone wrong in this country but are actually costing people's lives. And that, I think, is now a much more serious problem than those that we talk about often here, which is that, you know, well, you know, the border force doesn't work very well. The NHS isn't really working at all. Um, The police don't really want to arrest anybody. You know, all the usual complaints that we make the roads are terrible you know the trains don't work everybody's on strike the teachers are about to walk out on the school children the school children are about to walk out on the schools uh, we now have a crisis of mammoth proportions however because a couple of stories in the papers this morning not least the telegraph splash killer poses a child to claim asylum and murder again in the united kingdom this is a story of an afghan refugee who came to this country via norway where he was refused refugee status and asylum status uh, he's murdered an aspiring royal marine uh, he stabbed him to death in a row over an e-scooter in bournemouth but it also turns out uh, that he was a well-known violent criminal uh, he had murdered twice in serbia on his way here uh, and also uh, because he had posed as a 14 year old he was in foster care living with a family and other children going to school even though uh, he was well over the age of 18 at the time we've also got uh, the metropolitan police in the firing line again on the front page of the times risking hiring rogue officers because they're only giving them online tests. They don't actually bother meeting people before they give them jobs in the Metropolitan Police. And finally, uh, the the other massive ignominy, massive terrible story uh, of a man uh, who was out on parole and should not have been out on parole, should have been recalled to prison six days before he murdered yet again a young woman in London. We'll bring you all of those stories and why the, 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 the nonsense of the running of this government is now reaching criminal proportions where people are being murdered, people are being killed as a result of government departments which simply are not fit for purpose. To wit, the parole board, the police, border force and the home office, all to blame for these deaths and all to blame for probably more deaths that will happen in the future. I'm not being alarmist here, this is actually happening and I want you to think about that. 0344 We'll also talk about the show last night Jeremy Carl put on. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell interviewed for the first time behind bars after she was sent to the Tallahassee Correctional Institute. Fascinating stuff. Charles Moore in the Telegraph this morning says he thinks Prince Andrew might be innocent. Ghislaine says the picture that shows him with uh, Virginia Giuffray uh, is a fake. We'll get into all of that as well. Much more besides, John Rental is here to talk through uh, through some of the political stories. Of course, Nadim Zahawi, uh, now under investigation by Rishi Sunak over his taxes. This will be the same Rishi Sunak whose wife 
paid a load of tax she didn't need to pay after it was uh, alleged that she wasn't paying enough tax. There's a bit of a tax problem with the Tories, isn't there? We shall see. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on. Molly Kingsley joins us a bit later on as well to talk about school strikes. Uh, we've got Catherine Burble Singh as well, uh, who's on board to talk about the problem with education in this country and why everything uh, is going wrong and why the teachers should not strike, I'm expecting her to say. But this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are here all the way through till one o'clock. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here at Talk TV uh, with you all the way through the morning. Now, uh, John Rental is here. Very good and a warm welcome to you, John. Good I morning. feel like I haven't seen you for a while, but I think you've been here I since... I was here last week. Yeah, I think you were here... Before, I was going to say, you've been here since the, the turn of the year, I feel almost certain. Um, loads to talk about this morning, but I mean, I know it's not really your wheelhouse, as they say, but I mean, we've got to talk about the probation service and the police service, which are both very much under the auspices of the Home Office um, and should be running better than they are. Um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, and, I, and I, I'm not I'm really not trying to make things out to be worse than they are. But it's one thing to have, you know, inefficient civil service and inefficient government departments. But when people's lives are, are at risk here. Um, it's not good enough, is it? Uh, no. And uh, there's clearly been a failure on the on the part of the probation service uh, in the, in that uh, murder case yeah. and and a failure of the of the of the border service in, yeah. uh, in granting asylum to an alleged uh, 14-year-old. Yes. I mean, that well, I was reading in stats today that there's, I think, 50 illegal migrants who have come to this country who have pretended to be under the age of 18. And when you do that, you enter into the um, uh, sort of care system and you become a foster child, effectively, being given to a family. Yeah. This guy was going well, to school, <laughs> you know, and he well, was over 18. Well, but if, if, if they are under... If they are under 16, then they do have to go to school. I mean, there's no... There's yes, no yes, but, but what I'm saying is there are 50 people who have been found to have been lying about their age. Yes, And, and the systems for checking that are not good enough. Well, and and, and also there are people who complain about um, the systems for checking that as if they're sort of in, inhumane and yeah. uh, unfair. And again, and we un go back to the, the problem of people being frightened of being accused of racism or being accused of being Quite. cruel and all of that. And that's yeah. got to stop, surely. No, absolutely. And and the fact that, you know, this guy was, was refused asylum uh, by Norway does yeah. suggest that, uh, that that our system is not working as well as some other countries. The fact that he also and gunned down two people in Serbia on his way here, murdered them, and was sentenced to twenty years in prison should also have been a bit of a clue. Well, yeah, but we didn't know that at the time. Well, why though? Uh, <laughs> that's the, well, that's the question, um, and that's what uh, that's what Rishi Sunak is promising to get uh, a grip of. Uh, that's you know he made that big statement about uh, about reforming the asylum. Mm. Uh, system just before. Well, he's going to make some laws, isn't end. he? I mean, you don't really make laws that are then adhered to by people who already break the existing. Well, no, laws. he was also talking about uh, speeding up uh, the, the decision on asylum cases and and toughening up the the, the requirements and and, say, and pointing out that you know a lot of these Albanian mm. um, uh, people who are crossing the, the channel in small boats. Uh, you know, Albanians are being refused asylum everywhere else in Europe, yeah. and yet, yet half of them are being granted asylum mm. here, and that, that can't be right. Well, clearly, he wants to get to grips yeah, with that. I mean, clearly the qualifications for, for, for asylum in this country are not fit for purpose, because the reason why quite often those who argue on their side and say, well, of course, in the end, they all get given asylum, that's yeah. because the system's wrong, not because well, they actually deserve to be given it. Well, that is the interesting question, and, uh, you know, we've got to get to the bottom mm. of that, and I think, I think Rishi Sunak intends to get to the bottom yeah. of that. The question is whether he will actually do so in the in the time available well time. my th my guess would be he won't um, because <laughs> at the moment uh, we are back where we were people are traveling across the channel even as we speak 
Uh, I was down on the coast at the weekend. It was very calm. I'm sure you know several hundred people came in at the weekend. Uh, nothing's changed at all, it seems to me. Well, and what, what be, we also don't know is how, where most of them have come from, because most of them don't even have any qualifications or identity papers whatsoever. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it is very difficult to get a grip of, uh, but it is um, depressing from, uh, from the government's point of view that they seem to be only at the starting mm. point. Uh, after having been in, in government well, for 13 years. you might say that about almost every aspect of what they do. Exactly. You know, you, they speak as though they I haven't been there for, for... They've only just inherited this <laughs> terrible mess. Where the hell did it come from? What could have possibly caused this? Yes. Well... Well, I think... I, I mean, that's, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, I think the Conservatives can get away with that um, once or maybe twice. You know, Theresa May mm. taking over, then, then Boris Johnson taking over. Yeah. But by the time you get to, to, to uh, you know, yet another Prime Minister taking over, and that's it, then just ignore this trust for the moment. Yeah. Um, that that trick starts to starts to wear thin. The mm. idea that you know you've got to start again mm. with it because it's a new prime minister and yeah. therefore therefore you're not responsible for all the failures of the previous previous nobody, thirteen yeah. years. And that's not that's not going to wash. And also nobody's really buying it anymore because no. I think people, generally speaking, have had enough of of, the, of Tory government in the same way that they'd had enough of Tory government last time around when well, ninety seven rolled in and Tony Blair rolled in. The difference for me though is that we don't have a Tony Blair figure, we have well, a Keir well, Starmer. Well figure. I was gonna say that that's all that's all fine and good, except that you know most people don't I mean, most people think that Keir Starmer will do a better job because they think the government could, couldn't possibly do a worse job. Mm. I'm not sure about job. that. But uh, there, there isn't that enthusiasm for no. him that, that we saw with Tony Blair. Well, Tony Blair, for whatever people may say about him now, was genuinely a breath of fresh air in politics, wasn't he? You well, know? he was a good prime minister. I mean, you know, th- there's no two ways about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't disagree and with that. People, and people are coming round to that view now, finally. Yeah. Uh, you well, know. I always said it, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the fact that Iraq was a bit of a stain on his, on his legacy, as he would see it, yeah. um, is unfortunate fortunate for him but aside from that actually he didn't do a terrible job well that's uh, i mean it's it's very interesting because you know as you as you know i teach a course on the on, on the blair government mm. at king's king's college and and in each year the students i mean obviously they get younger and younger i mean these are no these, you're just getting older these, right? are, these are postgraduates <laughs> post all born in <laughs> born in the year 2000 they weren't even born oh. when tony blair became <clears throat> prime minister no, I know. but 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 each year it's interesting that the hostility towards tony blair has has lessened. I mean, right. you know, it, it, a, f- a few years ago, all the students just said Tony Blair, war criminal, yeah. uh, don't like him. Yeah. He, di- he did Iraq. They're not saying that now. They're mm. saying, you know, Tony Blair actually won a lot of elections, and he seems to have done a lot of a lot of important reforms yes. to public services. Yeah, I mean, and, you can you can argue all day about whether he was good or bad or indifferent, but he was certainly an important prime minister. No question about that. Yeah, and as and as current sort of, I would say, history would suggest, uh, not a bad one. Yeah, well, absolutely, and a, and a model for 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 both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer to follow. Yeah, maybe so. Um, you'll probably get more insults for that than, uh, than you deserve to get. But this is partly why, as well, I'm, the two stories that sort of broke over the weekend: Nadim Zahawi and his tax problems, Boris Johnson and the BBC. Um, I think most ordinary people in this country, outside of the Westminster bubble, see those both stories as kind of, well, of course that's what they do. You know what I mean? They've got so little faith now in, in government officials they've got, and it may well be down yeah. to the Boris Johnson legacy as well, that, well, of course Boris has borrowed 800 grand from somebody. Nobody knows what he wants it for. I don't really care what he did with it. The BBC Director General is the guy who really does the work at the BBC. The, 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 you know, the chair of the BBC is a, is a job that I don't think anybody understands. I don't suppose anybody but, really thinks that Boris Johnson is influencing the BBC by doing any of this. And, and well, I think the Zines of the Harvey is a genuine story, but most people don't are not surprised by it. Well, yeah, that, I mean, I, I think that's that's a depressing uh, thought, actually. I mean, P- Pat McFadden, the uh, 
Shadow uh, Chief Secretary of the Treasury was saying that the problem with these stories is that is that people they, they encourage people to think that politicians are all the same. Yeah. Um, whereas he would obviously insist that that, that Labour politicians are rather different because they but they're not though, they? get into that. that but they're kind not. Of trouble. No, well, I, mean, I mean, there's I, a former Labour MP currently on trial. Um, and we won't get into it because he's currently on trial well, exactly. um, for wasting a load of money on drugs. Yeah. We don't know about that, and it's been reported in some newspapers without even attributing which party he was in. Yeah. I don't want to point any fingers, but <laughs> not a million miles away from the independent. You know, um, you've got other uh, Labour MPs who've got up to all sorts of shenanigans and terrible things and yeah. criminality. Um, they all get reported on. And I think that's why people have now reached that that's, that point. I mean, Tories tend to be richer and tend to have more multi-million and tend to have more tax complicated tax affairs. Yeah. Yeah, but again, you, say. you know, as I was saying yesterday, I'm not without defending um, uh, in any way Nadim Zahawi. Um, if you're in a business and you are uh, in dispute with the tax people, you yeah. are that's part that's kind of par for the course. I mean, you know, most companies are in dispute with the tax people over things all the time. Well, um, this the is question is what they're in, what they're in dispute over. Yeah, and this, whether, is whether, this is a particularly big one, and yeah. it's got a particularly big penalty. But that doesn't mean that he's done anything wrong. Uh, well, it might do. Well, well, it, it we doesn't appear to. It doesn't appear. That. No, he doesn't appear to have broken the law, does he? No, because because the in no, sorry, I'm about to call it the inland revenue HMRC. Yeah. I think it's called now. Um, don't usually don't usually go to court because that, that that's that's too time consuming and and expensive. So if they, if they can just agree a settlement, then that's 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 a much yeah, better way of doing it. Yeah, but hang on, but that doesn't, gonna, that yeah, doesn't you mean can't, you can't say, oh well, it clearly they they've just decided not to go to court, so he must have committed a crime. That's not, no, I'm that's not saying he has committed a crime, and it, but he insists that the that the HMRC accepts that what his mistake was was careless rather than yeah. rather than deliberate. Um, He's probably right. We, well, he, he may be right, but the question but the question is it. It took a long time to find that out. Um, you know, his you know, people, the journalists have been asking questions about his tax affairs for a very long time. For about six been, months, right? He's been stonewalling. No, much longer than that. Well, and he's been he's been stonewalling. The point, yeah, but and, the point and, is and, that and, if and you're, then, then if you're in, involved in a dispute with the tax man, you don't owe them any money until that dispute is over and done with, and yeah. that's the point. Whereas he's being made out to be somebody who's held out for ages without paying this money, and that's not really a true. Uh, uh, recollection of what happened. Well, let's see what the, uh, the what the Prime Minister's advisor on ministerial standards uh, finds out. Because uh, well, know, maybe he'll resign like the last advisor on ministerial <laughs> standards. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, we can't say. John Rental is here. We can take a short break. Back with more uh, on what's going on inside of Downing Street, if anything, um, apart from a lot of running around and shouting. This is Talk TV on the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio, and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, John Rental is here with us. We've been talking about the uh, whys and wherefores in the Deem Zahawi case. As, as you say, John, it will be investigated. Quite busy in the old ethics office at the moment, aren't they? Because they're investigating that. Um, they've got a couple of other things Dominic going on. Dominic Raab. Dominic Raab investigation still going. When's that going to be published, if any, if well, any time soon? Who knows? Um, but, I mean, it's a gift, isn't it, to Starmer for question time tomorrow, part, um, Prime Minister's questions, because he's just going to say, well, this is a government now engulfed in sleaze. Yeah. He's bound to say that. Um, he's almost know, how bound can to it, use the how sleaze can, word. How can it possibly yeah. carry on uh, where nothing is working and they're all running around trying to cover their backsides? And he's probably got a point. Also this morning, Boris Johnson, front page of the Daily Mail, huge big picture front page. What the hell is the West waiting for? In an extraordinary, powerful and emotional rallying cry, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson implores our allies to give Ukraine all the weapons it needs to win now. Is he setting himself up as some kind of, you know, future Nobel Peace Prize winner or something? Well, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that people can't uh, criticise him for. Uh, for his his time as as prime minister, because I mean almost everybody agrees with uh, with the, with the line he took on Ukraine, and actually th- gives him quite a bit of credit for for 
for what, in terms of supporting them, yeah, and, yeah. and for and for supporting them very early on. Yeah. I mean, I think that was I think that was significant. I mean, Zelensky obviously thinks that British support early on was decisive mm. in, um, in in pushing back. And they're massive the fans, aren't they? I was listening to a report from there the other day, and apparently they, they have things called Boris Burgers that they sell. <laughs> uh, he's that much of he's, a sort of local hero. I think he's had a street named after him. He's extremely popular mm. in uh, over there, and. Uh, and, and rightly so. And so, you know, you can't blame him really for for milking the one thing that uh, that people think he got right. I mean, the other the the other thing being the the, the vaccine program. But I mean, that's 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 ancient history. To it is ancient now, history. This is, but this a lot is of people really saying current. that the Nadim Zahawi story, uh, and also of course the, the the one engulfing him with with the BBC, which I don't care about, um, <laughs> is uh, are both legacies of his time as prime minister. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, well, I'm not sure that Nadim Zahawi's got anything to do with Boris Johnson. I mean, except that he was he was made well, temporary, temporary chancellor. Well, except that the, he was made chancellor, yeah. and that's one of the one of the kind of um, uh, yeah. reasons for ridiculing what was going well, on. Because a lot of people are saying, "Oh, but he shouldn't have been put in charge of HMRC as chancellor if he was having a dispute." With yeah, him. I think well, I think that's irrelevant. If there was I any mean, truth to that, then presumably he would have had them wipe the case. Yeah, which he didn't do. Well, he can't you know. do. It. I mean, you, you, well, that's what you, I mean. You can't do that. No, of course. I mean, so the point you, is, is that he ha- that had no. Bearing no, that had no. I, on, I agree. The I mean, the, the, the question is whether Nadim Zahawi has done something wrong or not. Right. I mean, you know, it's nothing to do with whether he's. Chancellor. Well, I mean, the, the inference um, for me on that is that if he's paid a fine, uh, which HMRC have asked him to pay, and they're happy with the settlement, then that's the end of the matter, isn't it? Well, that's uh, well, that's what Nadim Zahawi would very much like well, us to think. That's, well, but, how can you uh, make another argument? Well, because they're, they're, because his affairs seem to be quite complicated, and that may not be the the, the beginning and end of it. I mean, there may well, be so more. Well, so if you want to go on a fishing expedition, that's fine. But I'm talking about the, the, this specific case, the 27 million quid, well, which he. Uh, took advantage of giving himself in some way which was perhaps not the right way to have done it yeah. um, has now been settled no, so y- well yes but, the, but there's still a there's still a slight question mark over over whether that was a, a genuine a genuine sort of uh, careless error mm. or whether there was there was something more I mean to I was going back to um, the HMRC's previous troubles for example in remember those uh, um, celebrities that were taken to task for putting into in money into film companies because at the time the HMRC said that it was legal and then later said it was illegal. So they went after a load of people who had done something with the advice of their accountants thinking it was within the law, yeah. then being told later because the law changed that they had done something wrong. So I mean, yeah, I'm never that, always on the side of HMRC here. And I mentioned this yesterday um, when I was on the talk. Same with this IR35 business that's going on. And there's an awful lot of people who have been who have won court cases uh, who then find themselves being yeah. appealed against by the HMRC, not once, not twice, but three times. And so, you know, the law in lots of tax cases is is very sort of movable, shall we say. Yeah, but not in this case, I don't think. I don't, I don't think any well, of those considerations not now. Are, uh, not now. apply to this one. But no. depending on who, you, who explains it to you, you well. know. The way, that, the way that it looks to me is that he thought that what he was doing was perfectly legitimate, perfectly, per- perfectly able to be done. Yeah. Um, and then there was a difference of opinion from various people and now it's turned out that he shouldn't have done it the way that he did it well if that, if that is if that is a correct characterization then uh, then he'll be fine and yeah. he can he, he can stay on as there are uh, others though chair. i mean i was listening to caroline <coughs> noakes who was on uh, with tom newton done last night tory mp she said he should resign now yeah. while the inquiry goes on and then he can come back if it clears him yeah, you well, know, so there is some. The, the, there are alter, alter, other views are are available. There always there always are. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean again, but it becomes the, he becomes the story rather than what he's supposed to have done. Yeah, but I mean, but none of this is relevant to to, to Boris Johnson, who who seems seems to be engaged in a bit of distraction from uh, from this uh, Richard Sharp story. 
uh, where yeah, he... I don't, I don't really understand the, the fuss about the Richard Sharp story. What's well, the fuss? Well, if if Richard Sharp um, helped facilitate his uh, a loan for for Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister, uh, while he was applying for the job of uh, chair of the BBC, mm. uh, to which uh, uh, to which post Boris Johnson then uh, then appointed him, then I think there is clearly there's clearly a conflict of interest. Is there? There. For, for for Boris, I mean, the, the Boris obviously had an incentive to uh, to give him the job. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how many other candidates there were, and I don't know what the also I don't know what well, the doesn't, job doesn't matter. You can't you you can't just give a job to someone who's just done you a, a financial favour. Really? That's, do you not that, live that in is, the real that's world? That's a rather basic principle. Do you not live of, in the real of, of world, British, John? British public life. You don't live in the real world. Uh, I do, do live you? in the real world, and the, 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 there are rules against those those kind of right. things. So what is his job exactly, this BBC character? What does he do? He chairs, chairs the BBC. What does that mean? The, the BBC What board. does it mean? Well, it means he he's, do the, much, he's he? the figurehead of the BBC. Yeah, but the, aren't, the way the story's being written, it's as though he's in charge of the BBC because people are led to believe if you're the chair of the BBC, you must be in charge of it. Yeah. You must be on the phone every day to Hugh Edwards to tell him what to put on the news. That's not what happens, is <laughs> no, it? No, the director-general is, yes. is, 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 is the But even he doesn't call Hugh Edwards up and tell him what to put on the news. You know, there is a series of very, very big safeguards inside the BBC of course. to make sure that everything is done uh, in a way which is uh, always swung to the left. Obviously, yes. right? So you've just agreed with that. But no, but, but that doesn't mean that the Prime Minister should, should, be, should be handing out um, well, maybe not. big jobs well, maybe as, pers- not. As, as personal favours well, to, maybe the, maybe to people the, who've maybe done the him Prime personal Minister favors. shouldn't be appointing the chair of the BBC. Isn't there anybody else that could do that? It was, uh, well, I mean, if the BBC you're going to sit, appoint the chair of the BBC? Well, they, I'm not. I'm not sure that would be a good idea. But uh, I think I think there's there's no harm in. Uh, in I mean, in the end, the government is going to is going to decide who the chair of the BBC is. Yeah. But there has to be there has to be a process uh, to be gone to be gone through, and there have to be rules that, that are followed, and they don't appear to have been followed right. in this case. So, what do you think is going to happen there then? Well, I think I think Richard yeah, Sharp should resign. I mean, I think. Uh, I, I, you know, I think if he had any, uh, if he had any uh, honour and decency, I should, I, I think he should resign. Uh, and if not, I think um, this investigation into him by William Shawcross, the uh, Commissioner of mm. Public Appointments, should uh, should invite him to resign. Yeah. Well, we've already had people saying that the process was robust. We've already had people saying that you know Boris Johnson is no longer involved in the government. So what's the what's the difference? And I mean, well, in the end, surely this is just a political witch hunt, isn't it? But no. people who hate Boris Johnson so much that they can't leave him alone. No, I, th- I mean, I think that this is a further um, uh, mark against uh, Boris Johnson's uh, character and his uh, and his integrity, um, which I, I think. I mean, if if there were any doubt about it, suggests that he can't come back as as prime minister. Yeah, but that's, he that's exactly he my point. Thinks, he no, but that's exactly my could. point. No, I don't think he wants to. Why would he want to? You know, he's well, having a far better time outside of the public eye. He can do all the things he Churchill. used to do. Well, he might think he's Winston Churchill, but he isn't. There isn't a war on, uh, whether he likes in to Ukraine think so or not. Well, there is, but we're not in Ukraine. He is. The point is, in the end, Boris Johnson will not return because it's not, there's not enough money in it for him. No, know? he won't return because Tory MPs won't have him. Uh, and the reason they the won't have him... The electorate won't have him either. Uh, well, exactly. He's not... He's, but it's he's, a bit like Donald Trump. The public. His enemies can't stop trying to kill him because they're frightened he'll come back. That's the truth, isn't it? But, but, but I don't think this is... A, I mean, this BBC appointment story is not, it's not made up. 
it's not, no, I'm it's not, not saying it is. I'm just saying it doesn't matter. Opponents. All I'm saying to it's, you is, is that the public, well, and I'm very matters. much more in touch with Integrity them than you Integrity in public life matters. No, it doesn't, because there is none. And there hasn't been any for a long time, so let's <laughs> well, not pretend. Well, if you take that view, then, uh, then nothing well, matters. Let's, well, let's talk no, about something everything else. Everything does matter. The stuff I talked about this morning matters. Probation, letting people out to kill, matters. Yeah, people allowing foreign criminals to come here and murder people matters. Mm. That's what matters. It's possible for, Nobody for, cares for two about different Johnson. things to matter. No, it's not. The only things that matter are the things I say matter. You matter to me, and that's why I like to see you. But we are here uh, for you, of course. You tell me, what do you care about more? People getting murdered uh, by migrants coming here pretending to be children, or Boris Johnson lending, borrowing 800,000 quid from some bloke who's now working for the BBC. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Uh, this is Talk TV. More after this. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Now, here's an interesting question from David. If Nadim Zahabi didn't do anything wrong, why did he agree to pay a massive fine? Doesn't make any sense to me. Well, there's a difference between doing something wrong and doing something illegal and breaching the, the, the rules that HMRC have set out. David, if you know anything about the tax authorities, you'll know that it's a movable feast, that sometimes tax people come after you for money, uh, sometimes they uh, are successful, sometimes they're not successful. You know, they went after Boris Becker. They took Boris Becker to court. They didn't take Nadim Zahawi to court, OK? Now, the question of whether he did something wrong or whether he breached tax rules is a different matter. You know, if you're in business, you are always on the cusp of breaching tax rules at, at any given time. Because if you are running a business, you don't wish to be taxed up the wazoo to the point where you can't afford to run the business. That's the bottom line. And so when you say... Did he do something wrong? And if he didn't do something wrong, why has he paid a fine? He's been found to have done something that he shouldn't have done by HMRC. They say he shouldn't have done it. He disagrees, uh, but he's agreed now to pay a fine uh, in order to make the thing go away. It's as simple as that, isn't it? I mean, if you've ever been investigated by the tax authorities, and I have you'll know that sometimes they get it wrong. And they got it wrong when they investigated me. So there we are. What can you say? Uh, let's talk now, though, to Gavin Mortimer, writer at The Spectator, of course, because the front page of the Daily Telegraph today, uh, and it's also on the front page of The Sun as well, uh, Murderer's Asylum Con, an asylum seeker who knifed to death an aspiring Marine, was on the run for double murder in Serbia when he conned his way into Britain, pretending to be a child, Right. And this is a guy by the name of Lawangreen Abdul Rahimzai. He murdered Thomas Roberts in Bournemouth uh, in a fight over an e-scooter. But this guy's history was violent. He had been refused um, uh, asylum in Norway. He had been in Serbia and killed two people with a Kalashnikov and was on the run from a 20-year jail sentence. He somehow managed to smuggle his way into this country, pretending to be 14 when he was over the age of 18. So not only was he living here as a child but he was adopted into the foster care system as a minor. He went to school, even though he was over the age of 18. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He also filmed himself beating people up. He was also somebody who fought on the streets for money. He pictured himself on TikTok with a knife, wielding it. I mean, the number of mistakes that have been made in this country by the Home Office, by Border Force, and by the people that are supposed to keep us safe, quite frankly, is shameful. Absolutely shameful. Let's talk to Gavin to find out what he makes of it all. Gavin, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. This is an extraordinary tale, even for the useless border force and the useless home office. You know, I said today I'm quite angry about this because it's one thing to complain about operations not working properly. It's one thing to complain about border force seemingly aiding and abetting uh, some of these migrants coming here on small boats. But now we've got somebody dead 
as a result of their uselessness. And I think it's time to draw a line under it. No, you, you described yourself as angry, Mike, and I'm, I'm angry. I don't often get angry about news stories, but this is just so appalling. A fine young man, Thomas Roberts, let's not forget his name, was murdered by a lunatic, by someone who, aged 16, fired 18 bullets into two Afghans in Serbia, murdered them over a, a row, apparently, over uh, an illegal uh, migrant traffic system. Um, and he was a convicted drug killer. Uh, as you said, the Norwegians didn't want him, but somehow he ended up in Britain and he was able to commit this heinous act. But Mike, this isn't the first time. I take you back to the Parsons Green bombing. Do you remember that in 2017? Yeah. Very, that, I mean, that could have been a, you know, a mass casualty attack had he not been so inept. But this, this youth, an Iraqi, again, should not have been in the country. There's a, a case in 2021 of the man who tried to blow up a Liverpool maternity hospital, yeah. but his bomb went off. He should not have been in the country. He was an Iraqi. He claimed to have been a Syri Syrian refugee. The Home Office had serious doubts about him, but nonetheless, he remained in the country. How many more of these incidents are there going to be? It just beggars belief. Well, I mean, I was reading the story this morning in which it, it detailed how there are at least 50 uh, individuals who have come to this country claiming to be under the age of 18. And my understanding uh, of what Kent Social Services says is that if you are uh, somebody young coming to this country, um, up to the age of 23, you can still be categorised as a child. And I find that extraordinary because apparently they're so frightened of being accused of racism or being accused of somehow judging people by the wrong standards, i.e. white Western standards, uh, because if you look older than you do, doesn't mean you are. You know, they've wrapped themselves in this ridiculous concept of, you know, multiculturalism that they can't see the wood for the trees. We are literally dying because of political correctness. Yeah. Mike, do you remember the Libyan bomber at Manchester? Yes. Uh, one of the security guards, a part-time young man, a part-time security guard, had serious suspicions about the bomber. But as he told the inquiry, he didn't challenge him because he didn't want to be accused of being racist. Yeah. And so what happened? He detonated his bomb. I mean, it, the system's completely broken, Mike. And it's, it's a coincidence that today, you know, I'm talking to you from Paris. Le Figaro newspaper published some statistics about the 45,000 people who crossed illegally into Britain last year. Um, 11,000 Albanians, 8,000 Afghans, 5,000 Iranians, 4,000 Iraqis. In total, 50 five zero nationalities were on those boats last year. Mm. Among other countries well represented in the top 10, Indians... Kuwait, I'm not sure there's a war in Kuwait at the moment, and the Egyptians. It's just, you know, we can't cope. And so because we can't cope, people are, people are literally dying on the streets, Mike. That's how grave a situation has become. And yet we'll get the normal hand wringing, the bleeding hearts will gnash their teeth, we'll be told not to be racist, and it will carry on. I can guarantee you, Mike, Six months from now, a year from now, you and I will be having exactly this yeah. same conversation. Well, we spoke last week on this show about um, a report that came out naming over, I think, 150 people who are dangerous criminals in this country who have come on small boats. There was the uh, case of the Albanian who killed his wife 
who's apparently running a car wash here, uh, who says he can't go back home because his wife's, his, his ex-wife's family might want to kill him. Well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have thought about murdering her in the first place. And then we've got uh, convicted paedophiles visiting this country, allowed to stay because they can't go home because uh, they might be tortured. We've got terrorists living here um, who have come here. And those numbers that you tell me about there with the nationalities attached, there are still plenty of people who come with no apparent nationality because nobody knows where they came from. They don't say where they came from, or they, they do say, but nobody really knows for sure if they're telling the truth. They have no papers, no identification. Um, and all of the time we get these lefty human rights lawyers uh, and various charities saying everybody that comes deserves a chance to be here. Well, not if they're criminals, not if they're murderers, not if they're rapists, and not if they're terrorists. You know, we've got to get better, surely, at making sure that those people don't get through the net. The bottom line, Mike, is is what matters most, the human rights of some dubious people crossing the channel illegally, or the human rights of Britons to live peacefully and not to be knifed to death on their streets. Yeah. And we've got to challenge this narrative of the human rights groups. It's an industry, and I'm sure for some lawyers it's a lucrative industry. But we've got to, and Suella Braverman, to her credit, is beginning to challenge it, and quite rightly pointing out that, yes, there are some people fleeing war-torn countries but they're not if they're coming from kuwait no. or egypt or these other countries and or actually to... or to be fair norway which is where this guy yeah. came from after norway yeah. refused to give him asylum because they obviously had a better system than we did how is he able to come here and get it here yeah no, absolutely it's just instead of throwing money at the french police uh, to, to to better police the huge stretch of coastline they should invest the money in speeding up the asylum claims and sending those people who are quite patently not asylum seekers but are just well in some cases dangerous criminals or other cases economic migrants returning them whence they came exactly right and i mean you've written a piece in the spectator calling uh, for asylum claims to be uh, thoroughly investigated because again we've got this kind of rather ancient system whereby people arrive, they get asked a question. Rishi Sunak has said he wants to strengthen that process, but whether that has happened or not, we, we don't know. Um, but it would seem as though if you simply say that you've been trafficked, you have the right to stay here. Uh, if you simply say that, you know, going back to your own country will cause you harm, you have the right to stay here. If you say that, you know, uh, that you've been in some way exploited by human traffickers uh, in another way, you get to stay here. I mean, are there any circumstances under which they say, yeah. no, you can't come in? Exactly. Theresa May's slavery act, um, I think 2015, has been a disaster because there are so many loopholes for clever uh, lawyers to exploit. And and that's right. And, and that's exactly the same in France. In France, Mike, they've actually the police have set up a special unit. So many Afghans are claiming to be minors, but they've set up a special unit to investigate if they are minors or not. Uh, it costs 50,000 euros a case. So, the, you know, and this is a falling on the taxpayers in Britain and in France. And it just can't go on. It's unsustainable. It requires tough, bold, courageous decisions by the government to stand up to these human rights, um, to the human rights industry. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Gavin, great to speak to you as ever. Thanks very much indeed. Big piece of spectator. Asylum claims is a thorough investigation. Get on it. Uh, you want to read that because that is part of the problem here. Uh, but it's now no longer simply something that we can sit here and talk about and complain about because somebody is now dead as a result 
of this system not working. And I'm afraid that that is unforgivable. Uh, Suella Braverman, uh, Rishi Sunak, Boris Johnson, um, any number of other Home Secretaries, Theresa May as well, uh, Priti Patel, they're all to blame. They've let this happen. They've allowed these people in. And this guy has now murdered somebody in Bournemouth over a scooter. He was a killer. He should never have been here. He should never have been allowed asylum. He was refused it in Norway. He murdered two Afghans in Serbia. What on earth is going on? This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are here all the way through until one o'clock, of course. There's plenty to talk about. The first hour has flown by. Lots of you getting very worked up and quite rightly about what is going on because we, we talk an awful lot about the uselessness of government departments here at Talk TV. We talk an awful lot about what on earth Downing Street is up to, what on earth the Home Office is up to. But today, I'm afraid things have taken a bit of a turn uh, to the dark side because we're talking about the deaths of two individuals, one young man in Bournemouth murdered by an illegal uh, immigrant who came here pretending to be a child when he wasn't, uh, who managed to get foster care when he shouldn't have, who managed to be inside of a school when he shouldn't have been. Uh, And he was a man who had murdered before and been refused asylum in another European country. And yet, here he was, wandering the streets of the West Country of Britain. Uh, and he ended up murdering somebody. Then we've got the case um, of a man who should never have been released on parole because he told the parole board, uh, despite the fact that he had a very violent past, despite the fact that he had committed several uh, crimes while in prison, that he suffered from rage and he didn't know how to deal with it. He was released and he murdered Zara Alina, a young woman uh, who was simply walking home uh, from her new job as a law graduate uh, in East London last year. This guy uh, was, again, failed by the parole board, the the public were failed by the parole board and as a result of these two cases which highlight the uselessness of two government departments there are now two young people in this country dead and I think that is an incredibly serious indictment not only of governments but of government policy and of what is wrong with this country. Uh, We'll talk some more about all of that plus much else besides. Molly Kingsley is here. Molly, very good morning to you. Thanks very much for joining us. Founder of Us For Them, of course, talks an awful lot about um, what happened during the pandemic and how uh, we somehow lost control, in a way, of our children's lives to a large extent. I mean, I know that these items that we've just talked about are not incredibly related to that, but they kind of are in as much as the government's policies and the government's inability to make things work have now resulted in really, really dangerous situations happening. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've talked a lot, haven't we, about broken Britain, Mm. and I think that extends to many different things. And, you know, the kind of malaise in civil service departments becomes clearer almost daily. And I think what's really striking about these cases is just how many touch points Mm. there were with the individual that were missed. And again, I think, you know, as with schools and as happened over the pandemic, we seem to have lost sight of who the end user of government services is. So, you know, the government departments and services should be there for the British people, whatever their function is, you know, whether it's to make sure taxes get paid properly, Mm. to protect people or to educate people. Like the end user is the public. And that seems to have been lost in these very bloated bureaucracies that suck up public money whilst often failing at the job 
they're meant yeah. to be doing. Well, I mean, we've already got another one to look at this morning, which you haven't gone into in a great detail, but in the Times this morning, the story about how um, the Metropolitan Police is now risking hiring rogue officers because they only really recruit people now online. They don't actually meet them to see what kind of individuals they are. I mean, I just couldn't believe this when I saw this. Uh, and, you know, of all the jobs where you would hope that the interviewing process has been rigorous mm. and, you know, you, we all know the difference between sitting behind a screen and meeting someone yes. in person and it's incredible to me that, uh, you know, someone for the Met Police could go through all the rounds of the interview without a face-to-face -face mm. interview. Like, right. how? Well, I mean, we were told as well because of the latest sex and crime scandal coming out of the Met last week um, with our officer David Carrick, or Bastard Dave as he was jokingly known, um, that actually, oh, well, it seems that there are a lot of um, what you might call miscreants and um, perverts and, and rapists and sex offenders who want to join the police because it's a good place for them to kind of hide in plain sight. Mm. Well, if that's the case, surely... The recruitment procedure should be even more stringent rather than less stringent, shouldn't it? Well, it should. And I mean, just, you know, the thought that you could employ anyone for a serious role without meeting them in person, I just I find very, very surprising because, right. again, it's just, you know, it's ease at the expense of quality, yeah. I guess. And, you know, it may feel easier to interview people by Zoom, but actually what costs are you adding when mm. <laughs> down the line, you know, problems with those appointments materialise yeah. as they keep doing? And you'd have to say as well, with a pretty good uh, sense of surety, that, that the probation service is probably worse off now because people are probably assessing criminals from home. They're probably not looking at them in the eye. They're probably not sitting in front of them. And they're probably all just sitting around discussing it on Zoom. Yeah, well, I mean, we, you know, and actually it's, it applies, I think, more widely to the legal service. So mm. one of the most, I think, troubling aspects of the pandemic was um, courts move from in-person yeah. to... Zoom, right. and I was told by a barrister that we were often with, um, just probably about three or four weeks ago. Unbelievably, court sittings are still often happening over Zoom, yeah. and you just think, how? Because you know, again, these very crucial functions of justice, of recruitment yeah. to key services. I just don't understand how anyone can kid themselves that a Zoom interview or a Zoom trial is in any way comparable right. to in person no. and you you wonder no, there's what... a reason why you have court cases there's a reason why you have judges the reason why you have juries the reason why you have mm. you know a process which is now no longer it would seem valid mm. crazy isn't it? it it is it is and you know and that's before you even get to the loss of efficiency and i know that's something we've talked about before yeah. but actually i think you know we are beginning to realize that actually if you allow large swathes of the workforce to work at home that comes with its own problems mm. in terms of loss of production and motivation you know yeah. we all know and I'm a very bad offender at this when you're working at home it's yeah. really hard to motivate yeah. yourself and, and I'm not buying this argument that I get from a lot of people because whenever I have a go at them for working at home they go you have no idea how much better it is or how much more efficient we are I'm not buying it I just don't believe you you know I don't believe that you can get more done sitting on your own unsupervised in a situation that uh, you know you would otherwise be working with a lot of other people people would be asking you questions you would have much more kind of interaction with other humans and other ideas and all of that you know you can't I just can't be convinced I won't be I think it very much depends on the role mm. and the job and the person yeah. so I do think that there is no one-size-fits-all I think there are definitely people 
for whom it works better and probably businesses as well. I mean, there are businesses that swear by it mm. and I think you have to allow that. And if it is working, I personally don't see a problem with encouraging it. I also think for women and families, it sometimes is the difference between being able to work or not being able to work. Mm. I do think, though, there are many roles where it's... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Simply doesn't work. And I think it depends a lot on, you know, the age of the person. So the kind of people in their 20s who I speak to, you know, often say, actually, it's, there is something about the camaraderie and yeah. the learning from people. How are you meant to learn? Right. And how are you meant to mentor people mm. if you're at home? Mm. And also, I think about the role. I mean, you, you know, as we all know, if you're doing something mind numbingly boring at home by yourself, the temptation is you put the washing on, you yeah. make a cup of tea, you, right. you get distracted. So I think there's a lot of factors. But yeah, I think I think when we apply the same blanket work from home policy to all sectors and all jobs, there seems to be happening yes. a lot in the civil service. That opens up a lot of problems. Well, I think the civil service is the chief sort of protagonist of it because mm. most businesses now are working out that actually encouraging people to work from home was probably a bad idea. Maybe you're right that a bit of blended working for some businesses is okay. But for, by and large, most private companies now, and they, some of them were saying it over in Davos, we want people back in the office because it works better. In the well, end. and now, of course, they can't get them back. And now they can't get them <laughs> yeah. back because so many people now go, well, actually, we rather like being at home. And so you can't make them come in. But the civil service, for sure, seems to be the most frightened of, of making that sort of, you know, ultimatum work for them. It seems as though there's nobody now in charge of anything and you can't make anybody do anything. And to me, growing up the, where I grew up and, and coming through the, the, the 70s and the 80s and the work ethic that we had then, I just find it extraordinary that people don't want to go to work. You see people in their 20s going, well, why should I? Why should I get up early in the morning and get on a train and you know have to huddle all loads of other people mm. and go to an office and work for nine hours and then come home on another busy train? Well, because it's called life, isn't it? Mm. Isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it is. And I think, you know, it's not because we never had that option. Of course, you know, they just wouldn't have been. I remember when I was a junior lawyer begging mm. to work from home for, you know, two hours yeah. so the electricity guy could come and fix meat or whatever right. it was. And that was just not tolerated right. then. So we've kind of had this huge shift. And mm. I think I think there needs to be some kind of equilibrium restored yeah. and an acceptance and a responsibility, actually, that also if you are going to work at home, you're going to work mm. because otherwise that it destroys the whole system. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of. And, you know, it is frustrating, I think, when working from home could work for some people, but it's becoming almost a dirty mm. thing to suggest because it is being abused and it's manifestly yes. not working across the country as a whole. Well, one of the things that might be happening, I suppose, in coming weeks is if the teacher strikes go ahead, you know, mm. many parents will end up having to work from home because they'll have to look after their kids who will be no longer going to school. Um, I'm not sure quite how it's all going to play out, um, but certainly the teachers who uh, we've spoken to in the, in the teachers' union seem very sure that they're going to go on strike. Um, and very sure that the school's going to be affected. So, I mean, there's so much to say on this. So I think, first of all, the I just starting where we left off, working from home. 
working from home when you've got kids there right. is a non-starter. Yeah. So let's just kill that myth. Mm. You don't you don't work from home when you've got well, unless your kids are maybe sort of later teen yeah. years. But by and large, my experience is it the kids do not work them you know sorry i'm phrasing this wrong the, ki- the kids don't learn right. remotely so that that is a fallacy and actually and i thought without supervision either right without supervision so you're either supervising children or you're working you're not doing both and you're doing no one any favors least of all your employer or the children to pretend that you can do otherwise and actually one thing i think as parents we need to be much much stricter and firmer about this time around is is rejecting the remote learning experiment it failed and actually not only did it fail educationally but in some respects it was proved i would say to be damaging and dangerous and actually it's really interesting one of the head teachers unions so national association of association of head teachers have come out and they have said looking at it from a teacher point of view actually it's unsafe and we're not going to do remote education it's unworkable Mm. and i would say as a parent actually that was great to hear because yes it it was awful and we shouldn't be going there again no and also for um many many people who um have got more than one child for example you can't be supervising you know three different kids on three different laptops many people don't even have one laptop you just you know and and we know the damage that was done because we've now seen reports that have said so we know the mental health problems that young people have now got as a result of not going to school practically for two years yeah i mean we have and and we shouldn't be talking about inflicting that on them again i do think I mean, so it's just a very, very difficult situation, isn't it? Because I do have some sympathy, actually, with school leaders who have been um, working under reduced budgets Mm. for close to 15 years now. So, of course, you know, what the government would say is, oh, but the school's got a £2.3 billion increase in the last budget and, you know, it's all fine now. Now, that I just don't think is true. I think school funding has been going down year on year. And I think the sad reality is that as a nation, we don't value education very highly. Although teachers' salaries have been going up, though. They had an 8.9% pay rise in October, apparently. They did. I think what they would say to that is that most of that has been wiped out by inflation. Of course, they're then... they would say that, wouldn't they? They would. And there's also the argument, actually, that I personally, I think having the unions were very key players in lockdowns Mm. and the economic destruction that ensued from lockdowns so personally i would say that the unions have lost the moral right to point to that destruction and say oh now we want to pay rise because you know inflation costs well maybe you should also yeah knowing what we know about the lockdown and how that affected children I can't yeah. believe that any responsible teacher would wish to go down that road again. No. But they seem to be willing to. You can't, you can't, I think, I think what we learnt during the pandemic is that schools are essential as any blue light yeah. emergency service. Mm. And whatever the solution now, and I do think the onus is on government as well as the unions, whatever solution is found, it cannot involve children missing more school. No, I think that's absolutely right. Molly, stay with us if you will. We've got more to talk about, including the behaviour of some MPs uh, over time, over the most recent week, uh, actually, specifically. Uh, but much else besides as well. We'll take loads of your calls. 03444991000. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Coming up, we're going to be talking to Charles McAllister uh, about net zero Britain, uh, another problem that we have uh, currently uh, on, the, on the books because you're being told by um, the National Grid, if you want some money back, just don't turn on the power.
They did it yesterday, they're going to do it again today. So if you turn off your power and you've got an electricity meter, you might even get 20 quid back. Marvellous. That will go some way towards the £3,000 bill that you've just received, uh, which you have to pay by now uh, before the end of the year. We shall see. Molly Kingsley's here, though, from us for them. Uh, Molly, we were talking about um, uh, the government and their failings, but the Labour Party, uh, who will be up against them tomorrow in the form of Keir Starmer, um, have been up to no good, it would seem to me, or certain parts of them have been. Um, Labour must discuss gender with respect, said the Labour leader. This is after a couple of incidents in the actual House of Commons mm. chamber, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, so I mean, it got very ugly last week and actually, you know, quite upsetting to watch. So there were scenes, this, the, the debate was about the gender reform legislation, which, you know, has, has been well discussed yeah. now. The Westminster government is blocking the proposal which would allow in Scottish Parliament, mm. um, you know, 16-year-olds to change gender without any medical prescription. Um, and rightly, the Westminster, in my view, the Westminster government have stepped in and said, you know, no way, effectively. Yeah. And there was a debate which started off civilised and rapidly descended last week. And mm. I think what was worrying about it was we had Labour MPs um acting in a very aggressive and intimidating way. I mean, ironically, the worst of these scenes were directed at Conservative MP Miriam Cates. And yeah. Miriam made very, I thought, reasonable, balanced, um, rational, actually, you know, showing a rationality that has been largely yeah. absent from this. Yeah, we've spoken to Miriam a couple of times, and she is very rational about She's very that. rational, and her argument, as I understand it, is just, you know, the absolutely respective of trans rights, but actually women need to be protected, and children need to be mm. protected and if you let everyone who wants to self-ID as the opposite gender you are opening um, the gates to that being abused mm. particularly worrying in women's safe spaces yeah. and these are arguments that I think many women feel very strongly about but I think what we all should be able to agree on as Starmer said is that we have to be able to debate yeah. these issues sensibly and that and respectfully and that just didn't happen in the House of Commons mm. last week so you had the scenes which have been flying around Twitter and been reported in the press of you know the MP Labour MP Lloyd Russell Moore who yeah. got very irate and who actually crossed over the benches to sit and glare Yeah that was an extraordinary case. thing that he actually because mm. I didn't even know you could do that because mm. it's only happened a few times in history um, and I thought there was a reason why they, they had the demarcation points but he did actually go and sit on the other side of the house and just stare at her he it's did a very odd thing to and, do. and it was very odd and it was you know the irony was that it was as or just after she had been talking about the need for women to be protected from physical intimidation yeah. of men and here we have a classic example in the right. house of commons and it was really ugly and it was very troubling i think mm. that even with such an overt example of intimidation you know he wasn't called up at the time for that by right. the speaker i mean there have been a few comments since but he's not been censored he's not had the whip withdrawn right. and you might expect you know what level of intimidation is okay mm. in the house of commons but again this shows keir starmer's inability to kind of make any kind of leadership move doesn't yeah. it because he's too upset he's too worried about upsetting the trans lobby um, uh, to, to discipline Moyle, presumably, um, yeah. and, he, and he can't really do any more than that. And you can just say, well, let's all just treat each other with respect, which is a pretty pointless thing to say. No, it's, it's meaningless. It's mm. absolutely meaningless because very clearly respect was lacking from yeah. that debate. Right. And I think, 
you know, it's not only Starmer, is it? We have many politicians who have failed to be strong on this issue. Yeah. I mean, actually, before this... Interver- well, Nicola Sturgeon's another one, isn't she? <clears throat> I mean, she's pushing this whole act Well, she's through. pushing it, I would say. It's not, it's not, she's not failing to, you know, she, she's actively pursuing it. Right. But even Sunak, I mean, I know they've, this government have intervened now, but it's taken them a while to find their voice on mm. this. And I think in this time, we've let this very, very activist and aggressive, actually, minority yeah. really um, overtake the debate. Yeah. So now we're on the back foot because actually the kind of position that Miriam and actually Labour MP Ritzy Duffield were arguing for, uh, you know, they're arguing for the the rational <laughs> protection, really, of the majority. Mm. And most women that we speak to, certainly on this station, would say that that's the side that they want to identify with, you know, that they think it's all very yeah. well. Nobody wants to make life difficult for anybody else. But equally, you cannot just steamroller other people's rights because you want more rights. Well, no, and you can't put people in a dangerous situation. Mm. And I think, you know, as a woman, I think many of us would be worried by the proposed changes in Scotland. Um, And I think, actually, for me, more fundamentally, it's a child safeguarding issue. So I know we've talked about this Mm. before, but, you know, take my little six-year-old tomboy. She's a girl, but she's very tomboyish. And, you know, actually... It opens up this whole new world of horror mm. where actually a few years ago you would have just been letting a child like that grow up expressing what any any identity sure. they want to. And now suddenly you're in this world of thinking, well, actually, if I don't say something, if I don't intervene, mm. is she going to be encouraged to think she can change gender? Yes. You know, what is she going to be taught in school? Right. What are, well, we've seen in Scotland, haven't we, in Aberdeen, mm. 50 schools giving out a questionnaire to seven-year-olds asking them yep. what's their uh, what's their gender identity yep. to seven-year-olds. It's I, mad, isn't it? It's seeding a very dangerous idea, mm. I would say. Yeah. And, I, you know, I no issue with um, adolescents and older um, young people taking a view as yeah. they, you know, as they become able to make those decisions. But I think and it's grooming, really. Well, actually, perhaps even it? discussing it would be a good thing. But the trouble is, again, you would worry, wouldn't you, that the schools wouldn't know how to discuss it because they'd be too frightened of offending no. somebody. So they would sort of inadvertently be encouraging people to maybe believe something that they didn't believe. I, I just don't think schools should be discussing this with primary school children and no. I think the person to look to here who has shown real leadership is DeSantis in Florida mm. so he has a parental rights bill and that is very very clear that issues surrounding gender ideology and gender identity should not be discussed mm. in schools certainly not without parental consent and yes. full information which doesn't appear to be happening here. No it doesn't and also in terms of some of the sex education materials that parents were asking to see they've been told they can't see them yeah and this uh, i saw there's a story on this reporter today wasn't there and this is really disappointing because mm. again about six months ago i think it was maybe a bit less dov department for education were making all the right noises on this so it looked like they were getting a grip mm. on this situation and and saying to schools look you have to be fully transparent right. with parents about what children are being taught in sex ed classes and it appears from these reports that that hasn't happened that there are some cases where parents are still being denied access to the materials Mm. and again I just think you know if this can't be made to happen voluntarily it is such a 
key safeguarding issue that actually we are going to need the same kind of legislative mm. approach as as is being adopted yeah. in Florida and other American states. And it is, again, Florida. part of this. I mean, we've been having this conversation since yesterday with the whole kind of war on woke that we've not really started, but that has been started around us where people have started pushing this stuff. And unless you sort of push back a bit, suddenly you wake up one morning and you go, well, when did that happen? How, think, did, that, how did that go? I think this is exactly right, Mike. And I think going back to the House of Commons stuff, I think for many of us, it seems so far-fetched yeah. and so devoid, actually, mm. of any common sense mm. that you just, I know I did about a year ago with, you know, all the, the very... Um, Stark gender ideology stuff. So oh, it will it will pass. Surely, yeah. no one actually thinks that you know changing biological sex right. is possible, and you know right. this will die down. And you don't say anything. And actually, I think a lot of us now are regretting not speaking yeah. out sooner because it has now taken root. Yeah. And how you get it out of schools, how you you know get the genie back in the box, is not obvious to see from here. Mm. No, it really isn't. But we should continue to try. Yeah, difficult should. as it yeah. may well be. Molly, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Molly Kingsley from Us For Them uh, talking about the war that we have to fight here. We said this yesterday. We'll continue to say it. Uh, we're going to speak later on in the show um, uh, to Catherine Burble-Singh, who's going to be telling us her view uh, on all of that. Coming up, Charles McAllister joins us, Director of Policy uh, at the Onshore Oil and Gas Organisation, because he's going to tell us what is wrong with the national grid. doesn't make enough electricity. That's what it's for, isn't it? Huh? This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the one place where you do actually hear independent thought, the one place where you do actually get encouraged to have independent thought. Uh, we want you to talk to us and we will tell everybody else what you think. We'll augment it for you. 0344 499 1000. We talked yesterday uh, about how there is currently a sort of war on woke going on because there needs to be one. Uh, Jeremy Clarkson wrote a piece on Sunday and many of you might not like what Jeremy Clarkson has written in the past. Many of you might not like what Jeremy Clarkson thinks about many things, but in this particular case, he put a very succinct argument together about how there's been a private and rather quiet coup going on in this country over the course of the last few decades. And we suddenly find ourselves in a situation where, for example, an MP, a male MP, considers it appropriate for him to walk across to the other side of the, uh, uh, of the chamber, sit down in a menacing manner to stare at an MP from the other side of the chamber, who happens to be a woman, uh, because he doesn't like her view of the trans ideology debate. We've got private schools now teaching kids how to be woke, uh, how to be much more kind of in touch with their gender ideology. Uh, we've got Catherine Burble Singh, who's going to join us now, uh, calls herself the toughest and most um, strict headmistress in the land former chair of the Social Mobility Commission, of course, as well. We thought we would engage with her today to find out what she makes uh, of this war on woke and what she makes of the way uh, that society is kind of moving and why we've ended up getting to this place. I think it's because most of us weren't paying attention. But let's find out from Catherine uh, what she makes of it all. Catherine, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it's busy time for you back at school and all of that, but... Um, I don't know whether you were able to see what Jeremy Clarkson wrote in the Times, the Sunday Times on, on Sunday. It kind of gave us some food for thought and we moved with it and took it to different places yesterday. And we concluded that there's an awful lot that's changed in our society. And a lot of societal sort of mores have become very much tighter and more rigorous. And independent thought's not really encouraged. You have to go along with what the majority tell you to go along with. How do you kind of see that and how do you counter that in your school? Yeah, well, we are a very traditional school and we think that our role as teachers is to teach maths and English and science and so on. Um, 
I do think that uh, a more modern way, a more modern approach in education has been to think that uh, our job as teachers is to uh, inspire children to become more radical in their approach to life so that they can over overturn the establishment and they can fight back against oppression and so on. And my position is always, look, some of my kids may end up doing that and some of my kids become might become dentists and that's okay because we need dentists in this world mm. it's it, you know th there should be a variety and i think unfortunately sometimes I, uh, the education uh some schools can see themselves as um a, a space for inspiring children to sort of rebel against uh, the establishment and i'm not sure that really should be our role our role as teachers should be yeah. to socialize children to support them to, in building a moral core, but also teaching them English, maths and science. Yes, quite. But it seems as though the establishment has also changed quite radically, certainly in my lifetime. You know, the establishment used to be full of old grey men in suits who wandered about in Whitehall, drank in private clubs, and you could never get anywhere near it if, unless you were born into a particular school and your parents had loads of money. Now, the woke establishment is a very different beast, isn't it? Well, it depends. I think that there is very much that old God that you're talking about. And I think that's what teachers can sometimes feel they want overthrown. But I think what you're talking about is a, a cultural way in which the country has shifted, mm. that we've all moved somewhat in our expectations of behavior. Um, yesterday, I was being interviewed by somebody and they were saying to me, well, what's really important is to teach children about racism and sexism. And I was saying, no, what's really important is to teach them about English and maths. And, um, and, and I thought, isn't it interesting that there are lots of people who think that our job as teachers should be to teach about racism and sexism mm. and so on, and that that's, that that's the most important thing that children need to learn. And that you're referring to a cultural shift in our society. Um, and, and that has been happening gradually over decades. And the reason that's been happening, I would argue, is because we have lost the sense of the adult being the authority in the classroom. Mm. And so we follow what the children want and children tend to follow trends. And if it's the children, I would point to Greta as an example, for instance. If children are setting the, the, the paths for us to go down, then we may end up going down some of the wrong paths. Yes, but I think an awful lot of the children are teaching uh, now uh, in schools because they were children maybe 10, 15 years ago. And when that sort of movement began, the teaching of those children has led to them becoming more part of that sort of woke establishment. It's a sort of a lefty establishment which talks about, um, you know, very London-centric type situations, you know, an awful lot of the rest of the country because we talk to a lot of people in lots of parts of the country, uh, as yeah. I'm sure you do. And I don't find that, you know, the, the sort of the what we regard as the kind of London-centric um, establishment exists in a lot of other parts of the country. Well, I think families might think, think like that outside and I think London families may also think like that I think you're talking about the educational establishment. I suspect a lot of your viewers will think, well, they might be somewhat frustrated by some of the things that the children are coming home saying from school, <laughs> um, that they're getting a bit worried about the stuff that they're being exposed to. Mm. Um, I can imagine that, and that is happening across the country, because I do think there is a cultural shift in how we teach things and what our expectations are. For instance, everyone calls me the strictest headmistress in Britain. Yeah. Why? Because right now our pips just went 
and you don't hear lots of screaming in the background here at school and doors slamming because my children are moving very quickly and very quietly to their next lesson right now. Um, now that is considered so extreme uh, that I'm considered the strictest headmistress in Britain. Right. <laughs> Once upon a time, that was normal. Yes. It was normal for all schools to behave like that. Sure. You know? But what I'm, I suppose what I'm getting at is that it's not just the educational establishment we're talking about here. We're talking about it moving through the educational establishment, but also then yes. inserting itself into the civil service, inserting itself into companies. I mean, companies now uh, yes. are very much more woke than they used to be, even private yes. companies, you know. And, I, and, I agree. And so what I you agree. might what you might have learned in a in a sort of sociology class when I was at university yes. has now become the norm. Yes, you're right. And you're absolutely right. About 10, 15 years ago, they're now in positions of authority. Mm. And when you talk about London centric, I suppose I would just say you're talking about the political classes, the media classes. You're talking about a, a particular group of people. There are a whole, I can assure you that our families here who are just ordinary London families mm. are not thinking in that kind of way. Right. <laughs> they're wanting a more traditional education. And I think that those ordinary families exist both in London and across the country. And they don't necessarily get a look in when uh, it comes to being able to voice their views, because actually those views can be seen as undesirable. You know, so they tell me I'm the strictest headmistress in a way to criticize me because they don't like our traditional ways of uh, the, the adult being the authority, right. leading learning um, and us having high standards of discipline and expecting children to do their homework uh, and to work hard. These are all old-fashioned, small-c conservative values mm. that we believe in here at Michaela that can sometimes, I think, get lost in our modern world that, you know, you call woke. <laughs> well, quite, because there is hope then, by the sounds of it, which is encouraging to hear, um, which is why we like talking to you and to, to people like you, because I notice you've uh, retweeted Melanie Phillips' piece today from The Times about how private schools, independent schools in particular now, have got this bug maybe worse than anyone because not only are they trying to be trendy but they're also kind of dealing with what they think is their guilt over being privileged which is an interesting uh, turn of events isn't it yes well I, I would say so it's um it can be difficult i think people feel guilty if they've been to a private school themselves as children and i think if you're a teacher you're a little bit ashamed of it you don't want to admit that you're working in a private school because our culture makes them feel bad for having anything to do with the private sector mm. and then the private sector can bend over backwards in order to make up for the fact that they feel so bad about that privilege so they might embrace decolonization with real gusto um they might um they might indulge their children too much in a way that i would say is not very traditional uh you know i expect children to be stoical to work hard to um for us to expect more of them you know hands out of pocket stand up straight all that sort of stuff yeah. um, and I think that we imagine that private schools are real bastions of traditionalism. I don't think that they are as traditional as we imagine that they once were. Mm. No, I think that's absolutely right. And it makes sense in a way, because an awful lot, again, of those people whose parents uh, put them in private school are in these kind of woke professions. And then so that's what they hear all the time, which takes me on to an interesting subject. I don't know how you deal with this, if you have had to deal with it. Andrew Tate. 
a man whose name I didn't even know until a few months ago um, yes. when my 15-year-old son started talking about him and then suddenly he was in the news and then suddenly he was being interviewed by Piers Morgan and then suddenly he was arrested. I'm told by people, and I was getting messages about this yesterday, that some schools are telling their kids, if you even mention this guy's name now because it's become so pernicious within young teenage boys' lives that you'll get a detention or you'll be getting some form of pastoral um, interference. You know, something will happen. What do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, it's a very good question. So I was just speaking to one of my, my head of year 11, and he was, um, you know, he's taken that point of view, right? We need to put them in detention if they do that sign that uh, Andrew Tate does with his hands. Um, and that's fine. But I was saying, but well, we've got to be Is very it, though? Well, I mean... Look, you, you give kids detentions for all sorts of silly things. Mm. So, I mean, and if they're doing that and they've been told not to do it, then they are being defiant. So that I don't have a problem with. But what I do have a problem with is that all you're doing, if that's all you do, is pushing that to outside the school gate. So they won't do it when they're in front of you, but <laughs> they're, they're having that conversation outside the school gate. And if you want to persuade them, that Andrew Tate isn't exactly the kind of man that you necessarily want to be. Do you want to be a guy who uh, parades around his 33 cars and says, look how cool I am and I've got all these women? Um, is that really what it is to be a man? You know, it, it, should we respect that? Is Should we instead respect men who are faithful to their wives, who live decent and dignified lives that uh, where they give something back to society and have a sense of duty towards others and help people and think about who they are as people and, and, and develop themselves and learn through life. You know, th those quiet lives of dignity, which are led by many men across our country, often get ignored. And the men who are promoted out there are the ones with the bling and the cars and the women. And that is not something that I want my young boys to be. I want them to turn into men more like you. Well, you know? thank you. Well, equally, um, you want to discuss it, though, don't you? That's the point. You don't want to kind of bury it under a, under a, um, exactly. a bush and say, well, we don't talk yeah. about that because that's, as you say, I think exactly. the, wrong, the wrong way to do it. One exactly. other thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, something called Chat GPT. Apparently, yeah. this is a thing which I had never heard of until this morning, until my producer Aaron told me about it. And I said, well, yeah. why don't you put in, apparently this is something you could just talk to, um, yeah. and it's AI, and it will write an essay for you. He put my name into it and said, can you write an essay about Mike Graham, uh, which yeah. it then started to do rather disturbingly, but it got quite a lot of stuff wrong. It said that I was I presented Question Time, Newsnight, uh, oh. the Andrew Marr Show. Uh, so it, oh. got, it got the sort of general gist of what oh. I do right, but it got a lot of details wrong. Um, do you find a lot of people using that? Well, we are currently investigating, you know, <laughs> and we're looking. I've got my teachers kind of putting in pretend essays and saying, OK, give me an essay on this and that so that we can look for what it kind of tells. Mm. How can you know, notice this is a kid who used chat GBT instead of doing what you asked him to do. Because my real fear is that this will divide our more privileged kids from the less privileged across the country. Mm. So what I mean by that is children who have parents who are able to be at home to watch them, to make sure they're not online doing their homework, that instead they're writing it out and using what's in their brains, they'll keep writing at home. And those children who know, oh, you know what, and nobody's around, I'm just going to go on chat GPT. They're never really going to learn to practice their writing at home. And that's that's worrying. Mm. Uh, 
and especially worrying, as I say, for the more disadvantaged child. So we are doing what we can at school here. But I have to say it is hard. It's interesting that you say they got it wrong. Um, uh, one of my deputies did the same with me and put it in. And I have to say, not only did they did the chat GPT write out a wonderful little essay about who Catherine Dribble Singh is, my deputy then put in, can you make the, 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 the essay more chatty? And chat GPT rewrote the essay in a far chattier style. Wow. It's amazing. Instantly, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, the other thing my teachers say is that it's fantastic for setting multiple choice questions, setting quizzes, doing all kinds of stuff. So, in fact, chat GPT can be great in some ways for teachers because yeah. it will lessen the workload. But on the other hand, when it comes to the kids, it is a genuine worry. And to your listeners, I would say, parents, beware. Don't let your kids just get on with their homework online because they will be doing all sorts of nonsense. And when they suddenly produce this miraculous essay, it might not be them who wrote it. It might be ChatGPT. Yeah. Just one final question. It's a short answer, I'm afraid, because we're nearly out of time. It's been brilliant yeah. to talk, talking to you. Um, teachers going on strike, should they? Well, you know, that's for each teacher and for each school to see. Uh, I can't really say. Um, I do. Look, people strike, I would say, when they are unhappy. And I would say that teachers won't just be unhappy because of pay. There's a whole load that, of reasons why I can understand behavior being a big problem, bureaucracy being a big problem. And these are things that do need to be addressed in schools. Uh, it's something we certainly address at Michaela, but I'm often vilified for doing so. <laughs> and I think it would be great if we could move our culture in the country to a place where we understand that good behavior from children is not just good for the kids, it's good for the teachers too. It is indeed. Catherine Burble Singh, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, uh, headmistress, former chair of the Social Mobility Commission. Michaela is the name of the school. Brilliant school, brilliant teacher, brilliant head, in fact, and brilliant all round, really. Uh, I've, I've, I will hopefully uh, continue with this discussion on the war on woke. We're going to keep doing it all the way through this week as well, because we need to. Coming up, Jeremy Carl's going to join us uh, tonight. More uh, on Ghislaine Maxwell. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Uh, not surprised, says Ian, to see gas doing the heavy lifting on the electricity supply. Wind has been at 10%-ish for days, and the interconnectors are really doing their bit. It's a mess, isn't it? Designed by truly, truly stupid people. Uh, well, that's very interesting, uh, what you say. Um, how many more people will need to be killed before the government wakes up, says Chloe? Even children killed at pop concerts wasn't enough. Men murdered in a park in Reading. A little girl on her scooter. So many unnecessary tragedies. We are angry, but nobody is listening to us. Well, I think you'll find that they will start to listen to us because we will eventually win. We always do. How about this from Angela? Mike, why are the men involved in the Epstein case not being sought and prosecuted? I'm only interested in these men being made public. It's an interesting point you make. There is, as Jeremy Carl just said, a little black book, supposedly. Nobody knows precisely where that is. I'm not sure where it is. I'm not sure whose names are in it. But supposedly, just from what we know from the pictures that we've seen, uh, there were some very powerful people indeed who visited uh, the US Virgin Islands where um, Jeffrey Epstein entertained many, many people and where many, many people did many, many things. And that's all I can say right now. But let's talk to Adam Coleman. Uh, he writes a column in the New York Post, of course, a frequent contributor to this show. Um, we wondered, Adam, what America thought of this interview and how it's being played there. Very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. 
Um, you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, I was I was watching it this morning, and I have to say that it doesn't surprise me that she didn't take any uh, responsibility for her actions or participation. You know, it it said something to me that her biggest regret was meeting him and not being involved in the ring itself, mm. uh, not being involved in hurting other people. Um, and I understand, you know, everybody's saying, you know, she's going through an appeal, but there, there appears to be nothing behind her eyes as far as having some sort of empathy towards the people who were hurt, um, more of litigating something that she wasn't litigating before, the that photo that was taken of Prince Andrews and how it seems to be photoshopped or not real. Um, that's her concern. Yeah. That's her concern. You know, she has no problem talking about how her life is and, uh, you know, what she misses and things of that nature. But I personally don't care what she misses. No. You know, she hurt other people and the life that she's living should actually be worse. I thought it was very telling that she was moved to a softer uh, location within our states. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, she contributed to something heinous for many, many years with someone who's uh, equally as, as heinous. Yeah. I mean, I don't care, as you say, whether her tofu <clears throat> is a bit tasteless because they don't give her any salt <laughs> right. to put on it. You know, to me, tofu is pretty tasteless no matter what you do with it. So I wouldn't be eating it to begin with. But at the end of the day, the black book is going to be something surely at some point that somebody gains access to. I don't know where it is. I don't know whether you've read anything about where it might be. But, you know, there are supposedly presidents in there, maybe um, governing officials from all sorts of countries around the world, top business leaders. We know we've seen pictures of Bill Gates. We've seen pictures of people like Bono. We've seen pictures of Bill Clinton, Donald Trump. You know, the list is endless. But, you know, and yet mm -hmm. nobody ever writes about them and what they were doing there. Right. And, and, you know, it's a sad thing for me to say this, but I've kind of come to the conclusion that the very powerful people within our society in the Western world, especially, uh, it's rare that they ever get any sort of punishment for their actions. Mm. And I've just kind of come to that conclusion when, when it comes to this. Um, she is, I don't want to say she's a scapegoat. She's obviously done something horrible. Jeffrey Epstein has obviously done something horrible. But the people who funded it, the people who are participating in it, right, the Johns, as we call it here, they'll never be brought to justice. I've just kind of come to that conclusion because mm. they're way too powerful, way too influential. Um, you can't give me any other explanation as to why Bill Clinton went to that island so many times and had no idea what was going on. Right. You know what? I, I'm a grown man. You know, I'm 38 years old. Why would I hang out with 17 year olds? Right. Like, does that seem... <laughs> it doesn't you know, seem normal. Is exactly. No. And I mean, I watched this, as I don't know whether you did, the Netflix documentary about Epstein, which was fascinating in and of itself, because you could see right. if you walked around that property that he had, I think it was in Florida, um, which was sort of festooned with what might be called loosely erotic art, um, you know, naked statues, naked pictures of young women. You know, you wouldn't have to be, you know, um, Columbo to work out what was happening. You knew that there was something probably not very uh, good and possibly very seedy going on. Um, and you also knew from Jeffrey Epstein's reputation what kind of guy he was. Right. I mean, uh, let me tell you, if I walk into someone's house and they have nude images all over their home, I don't care if it's in uh, fancy paintings or not. Right. I would think something is up here. Why are you? Yeah. Why are you? It's a bit weird. This? Yeah. It's very weird. Uh, you come in here, I have, you know, a, a cat painting, mm. <laughs> you know, I don't have anything uh, highly sexualized and suspicious here. Um, but I, I do want to say one more thing as far as uh, just I find it very interesting 
that everything always comes back to Jeffrey. Everything is Jeffrey's fault. And she's painting a picture that she was coerced, right? I was just living my life. I should have mm. never met this guy. Right. You know, that he just pulled her in with his, I don't know, with his money, his charm, his influence. She is responsible. She's a grown woman. She is responsible for her actions. And I really get tired of people who do not accept accountability. You know, I understand once again, she's going through an appeal, mm. but don't paint yourself as a victim towards uh, with Jeffrey Epstein. You were his right hand. Yeah. You were his best friend, as they put it. And she also got his um, kind of, shall we say, his his business connected to various people that she brought to the party. So she knew mm-hmm. the likes of Prince Andrew. It wasn't Epstein that knew Prince Andrew. It was her. And so, you know, okay. the connections were made to a large extent, certainly outside of the US, through her, not through him, because she was seen as this kind of rather um, high-flying socialite um, who knew everyone. Right. She knew everyone. Uh, you know, she like like she mentioned, she knew the Clintons. Mm. Um, and the funniest, actually, if there's a funny point as to what she said, she said, you know, there's there's some goodness in me because of my involvement in the Clinton Foundation. And I about fell off my couch when she said yeah. that, <laughs> you know, because the people at Haiti feel very differently about that. Well, exactly right. And did she not also try and get um, the use of Clinton's name to sort of help her in the sentencing uh, procedures as well? But he obviously had to decline that. But I think she was hoping that he yeah. would write her some kind of letter of recommendation or something. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. No, her name was way too public. Uh, Jeff's name was way too public out there. Everybody who's powerful is going to back away, disassociate, claim they never knew anything. I had no idea. You know, yes, I went to all these dinner parties with them and there were 17, 16 year old girls walking around mm. and they look suspiciously young. Yeah. Um, but no, I have no idea what was going on. Had no clue. Yeah. Um, nobody believes that. No one wants their name attached to this. And as far as the actual prosecution is concerned, uh, she supposedly is appealing, as you said. Um, there's no other prosecutions coming, as far as we know, from the whole shebang, is there? Uh, not that I'm aware of, no. No. It's interesting. Well, listen, great to talk to you, Adam, as ever. Thanks very much indeed. Adam Coleman there, uh, columnist of the New York Post and else, much else besides writes, of course, for Mail Online uh, here in the UK as well. A couple of tweets for you. Great head teacher on Talk TV just now, says David. Children should not be radicalised in classes. The job of teachers is to teach maths, English, etc. how to interact with each other, traditional hard work, not how to hate the government and our culture. Um, and one from uh, somebody who doesn't unfortunately give a name. I taught at a state secondary school before I became a barrister i was supposed to teach music which was my degree but i ended up subtly teaching the kids english and maths because it seemed to me no one else was doing it um the debate says fiona in uh, parliament on the gender bill was disgusting uh, these low lives are ruining our country and running it into the ground labor and the snp are showing their true colors well, interesting enough, and many of you are asking for more of Molly Kingsley as well. We'll be getting more of Molly Kingsley, of course, throughout the course of this year. We'll be using um, an awful lot of very, very new and very good voices here at the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, because if the war on woke is to be won, we need to be able to pick it out. We need to be able to identify the places where we need to fight back. We need to identify precisely what it is uh, that is going wrong, and we need to be able to say what is going wrong without fear or favour. This is Talk TV. We'll take some calls next. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app.
If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.